He used four words instead. He used four words to emphasize that you should pray because he knew something. He knew that your prayer has the power to change the world. He knew that your prayer has the power to make the world spin. He knew that your prayer has the power to influence the heart of God. And here's how he knew that. This is, here's how you can know what, what Paul was thinking when he said that. It's verse 5. This is the gospel. This is what Paul said. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. There's no other mediator. It's just one, and it's the man Christ Jesus. The sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to hopeintigard.com. I tell you what, I, I love my job. I'm thankful that every single Sunday I get to come here and be with people who have entrusted me. They've entrusted me to, to share God's word with them, to help them to understand it and interpret it and love it and bring it into their lives. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. He loved being an apostle. He was constantly repeating that. He'd said, I, I love being an apostle. I count it as the highest blessing that Christ has, has entrusted me with his word. This is what he said in our lesson for today. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul wrote, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you have given us this scripture so that we can know you better. Help us to understand that you are not just a subtraction of what we are not. You are the addition. We are the addition of what you are before God. Amen. So my family and I took a trip to the beach probably about three weeks ago. It was one of those, those perfect Oregon beach days where you get there in the morning and it's 75 degrees and there's no fog, no wind, the, there's no clouds in the sky. It was perfect. And we set up our chairs and, and Theo and I grabbed our shovels and bucket and we got to work building a sandcastle. And what we would do is, is we'd pile up sand and, and we would make a sand castle version of Mount Hood up to a point. 
And then what Theo would do is he'd grab his bucket and run to the ocean, fill it up with water, and he'd come back and he'd dump the water over our Mount Hood sandcastle and he'd turn it into Mount St. Helens. <laughs> he'd make this huge crater into the side of it with water running down the sides. And then we'd pick up our shovels and we'd build it up again into another Mount Hood sandcastle. And then he'd get his bucket and turn it into Mount St. Helens again. And, and we spent the whole morning doing that. We had a blast. And I was chuckling to myself the whole time, kind of laughing, like, why would you bother building a sandcastle that you just are, are going to tear down again? <laughs> and it got me thinking, you know, I was thinking about this text today and the truth that it teaches, and, and it got me thinking. Why do we build sandcastles in the sand? We know that they're just going to be smashed. We know that eventually the tide is going to come in and wash them all away. And I know some of you are sitting there rolling your eyes into the back of your head thinking, Pastor, just let your four-year-old build a sandcastle. But I think you know I'm not just thinking about sandcastles in the sand. I'm talking about the sandcastles that we build in our lives. The sandcastles, the things that, that are so important to us that we spend so much time and effort investing into them and yet they are in such danger all the time of being swept away. I'm talking about your family that you love so much. I'm talking about things like your country, your government. I'm, I'm talking about things like your local church. The things that, that, like, in the tide of history, these things, they're just so, so many sandcastles in the sand. This text shows that it's not just me that has this on his heart. Paul had it on his heart. That's why he asked us to pray. And he shows us that God also has this on his heart. He shows us that God does not want people to be like sandcastles in the sand. It shows that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants that, and so Paul wants that, and, he, and so he says, pray about it. Pray even for things that are historically as small and insignificant as rulers, as kings, and nations, because even things like that help so that people can come to know Jesus. He said this, this is what Paul said, he urged us to pray, and, and you can notice how emphatically he says that because he uses four different words for prayer. This is verse 1. Paul said, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority. And you can take a step back from this verse, and you can notice how significant it is that Paul says a sentence like this. Because Paul is an academic. He had one of the most revered teachers of the day as his personal mentor. His name was Gamaliel. 
Paul was an academic. He was wise. He understood things about history. He understood his place in history. He not only understood the fact that not so distantly in the past, Alexander the Great had come through and had washed through all of the established empires that had seemed so strong. And Paul knew how to apply history. He knew that even though he lived as a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire, that that enormous empire was going to come down. And he understood that there were going to be people like Napoleon who are going to come in and rush through and take down established empires. He understood empires rise and empires fall, right? And Paul still says, pray. Pray for kings. Pray for those in authority. Pray for nations. Paul says, pray big prayers. You know, if, if we zoom out on our existence like that, and, and if we look at our place in history and our personal contributions to history, and we look at that in the scheme of all things in history, it can make us feel and seem very small, right? Out of everything that has ever happened... I don't know how many of us in this room are hopeful that our names are going to be remembered throughout time. And, and I don't even know, but parents have the highest hope for their kids. I don't know how many parents there are in this room who are thinking to themselves, yep, my child is going to be the next president of these United States. I don't think most of us live in a place where we have that high of hopes for ourselves. I think most of us land kind of somewhere in the middle where, where we understand that we are just a small part of human history and there are so many things going on in this little blip of human history and so we're just thinking to ourselves, I hope the tides of history don't change while I'm around. I hope I don't get washed away in them. And I think our prayers get pretty shallow and narrow and we pray, Lord, Keep the tides at bay so that I can just hang on. Do you think that's what Paul meant? He said to pray for kings, pray for empires, pray for nations so that, this is verse 2, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Do you think that's what he meant? Do you think he meant that the business of our lives, the greatest thing that we can hope for, is that the tide doesn't come in on us? Do you think Paul encouraged us to pray continually and to pray big prayers only so that our sandcastles of our lives won't get stomped on? I think we know that that's not what Paul meant, but I think those are the prayers that we end up praying anyway. And I'll tell you why. We have small hopes for our lives. Because we think of our lives as small in importance to God. 
And we pray small and narrow prayers because we think that our voice is just one of billions to God. But Paul asks us to pray big prayers. You know, I went and I did some research about about what prayer is like in America. I wanted to understand better the way that people pray. And what I came away with was a a profound insight that I took away from statistics that didn't necessarily surprise me. The first statistic is that, and I think we can all verify this through, through personal experience, that most Americans, a high majority of Americans, talking 70 to 80 percent, a high majority of Americans believe that prayer is good for something, even if it's just catharsis. You know, I think we can verify that with our own personal experience. We've understood that, that even, even a person who doesn't necessarily believe in God at all, they'll come to you in a hard moment in their life and they'll say, will you play, pre, please pray for me? A high majority of Americans believe that prayer is good for something. That wasn't surprising. It was also not surprising that a majority of that majority of Americans who pray didn't know how prayer can be useful for them. They thought it was good for something, they just don't know what. No, it was kind of like this. They believe a number of things about prayer. The first one is that, is that God, He hears your prayers. They believe that God hears your prayers, but... He carries out what he wants to do anyway. His will is not influenced by prayers. Or or they believe that God answers prayers a lot more often when there are more people praying the prayer. That your prayer becomes a lot more powerful depending on how many people are praying it. Or people believe that, that, that they just send a prayer out there and hopefully somebody hears it. It doesn't matter who. And, And perhaps most significantly, this is what people are increasingly believing. That God only answers the prayers of those who are truly committed to Him. And that, on the other side, God does not answer prayers of those who are not committed to Him. This is true. People think like that. It's historically true. I mean, you go back to the Middle Ages. I'm on a huge Middle Ages kick right now. I'm getting ready for our Martin Luther Bible study uh, on Saturday. Really excited about it. In the Middle Ages, this was exceptionally true. That almost every person knew that prayer was valuable. But they also believed that their prayer, their personal prayer, was not valuable. They had been taught by the church, by those in authority, that their prayer was not valuable. And so they had to take it to somebody whose prayer was valuable. They had to take it to somebody like Peter, or Paul, or Mary, or one of the saints, or to the Pope, so that that person who has God's ear can get your petition taken care of. And I want you to know this morning... To a degree, that is true. It is true that there are some in the world who have the ear of God and there are some who don't. It is true 
that there are some who can pray all day long with all the fervency that they can muster and they won't rustle a leaf and then there are some who can pray a tiny little prayer in their heart and the world will spin. There are some who have a direct line of access to God's throne room and he always answers and there are some who couldn't get a hold of God if their life depended on it. That is true. So what is the question that you have to answer? We can take this insight from what we learned about the statistics of prayer and we can put it into practice here. People have understood that there is something about themselves that makes their prayer valuable to God. What is it? The Bible teaches this. That when it comes to prayer, it's always about holiness. Are you holy enough? Are you holy enough that your voice is worthy to be heard in the throne room of God himself? Are you holy enough that you are worth God changing his will to answer your prayer? Are you holy enough that your prayer should influence the heart of God? Right? It's a key question to answer. I I ask this question every time in our Hope Essentials class, in in our Bible Basics class. I I ask this question. I I remember I asked this question in class, "Are are, are you holy? And one person answered, he said, no, I'm not holy. And I didn't push on that. I understood what he was talking about. You know, I knew that, that, that he meant that there were things in his life that, that he had to work on. And I think all of us feel that. We know about ourselves that there are things that we have to work on. We look in the mirror, and I don't think any of us are are looking in the mirror and saying, that person is a saint. We all see sin. And because we see sin, we think this way about our prayer. Why would God bother to even throw me a scrap of his grace? Why should God listen to my prayer? Why should God care about my life? Why should my prayer influence the heart of God? We see our sin. And so our prayers are small. I'm going to get facetious with you guys here this morning, and I hope you you can take the point away that I'm trying to make. It's interesting to notice this isn't how Paul talked. He knew his people. He knew that they were sinful, and yet he didn't write in the book of 1 Timothy. He didn't write down in his letter, you know what, you people, you're small because of your sin. You should probably pray and and give your prayers to me so that I can take them to God on your behalf. Then you have a chance because I'm big with God. He didn't say that. 
He used four words instead. He used four words to emphasize that you should pray because he knew something. He knew that your prayer has the power to change the world. He knew that your prayer has the power to make the world spin. He knew that your prayer has the power to influence the heart of God. And here's how he knew that. This is, here's how you can know what, what Paul was thinking when he said that. It's verse 5. This is the gospel. This is what Paul said. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. There's no other mediator. It's just one, and it's the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. You have to understand what's happening with this verse. Many scholars, me included, there's, there's, there's really good evidence to believe that this was a creedal statement of the early church. You know what we do every single Sunday? After the sermon, we're going to do it today. I'm going to ask you to stand up and confess what you believe according to the words of the Apostles' Creed. This very well may have been one of the first creeds of the early church. And as a creed, this would have been something that the people said together, maybe even sang together. This would, be, would have been words that, that most every person in the church would have known by heart. That there is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for our sins. We come to the heart of this text, and it's beautiful. There is only one God, and there is only one way to his heart. Do you know what it is? You notice the hymn doesn't describe mediation. It doesn't describe all the things that you must do in order to get a hearing with God. The hymn describes a mediator. The man, Christ, Jesus. You know what you can learn from that? You can learn that the gospel, salvation... <laughs> is not a process. Salvation is not a list of things that you've got to do to earn it. Salvation is a person. The gospel is a person. The gospel is a person that you trust to go to the negotiating table with God. And the hymn describes why you can trust Him. Because He's God. He's got the credentials to, to go and talk with God about our sins because he is God. And not only does he have the credentials, he's got the right payment. The hymn says that he gave himself as a ransom. And when Christ gives himself as a ransom, it is more than enough because it is a God-sized ransom. It is a God-sized ransom that is bigger than any of our sins and is cosmically saving because of that ransom, your sins were subtracted from you. Remember last week, we talked about that. That is the first gospel essential. That even though each one of us is the chief of sinners, because of Christ, our sins are no more. And here's what I want to give you today. The second gospel essential, maybe? Not second in importance. 
Not only did Christ take away your sins, not only is your slate clean, the gospel says that Christ is added to you. His righteousness, his goodness is added to you. He didn't just take away your sins so that you could start over at at a baseline that is clean so that you could go forward and earn it yourself. What the gospel truly is is that your sins have been taken away and Christ's goodness, his righteousness has been added to you. That means that you have a halo right now. You are holy in God's sight. Did you ever think about that? That right now when God looks at you, he sees a halo of perfection above your head. You are a fully canonized saint. And in the hall of fame of saints up in heaven, you are there. You are perfect in God's sight. I want you to know that. I want you to remember that. That this is the gospel of Christ Jesus. That not only have your sins been taken away, also Christ's goodness, his love, his mercy, his righteousness has been added to you. And now, bringing it all together here, this is what that means about your prayers. Remember that the question that it always comes down to with prayer is, are you holy enough? Are you holy enough that Christ, God in heaven, should hear your prayers and answer them? The answer is yes. And so that means about your prayers that you can pray big prayers and you can expect them to be answered. And you can expect them to be answered in a far better way than you can ever expect. You can pray prayers for kings and rulers and empires. You can pray prayers that sway elections. You can pray prayers that take away pandemics and make them fold away into forgotten history. You can pray prayers that can make this local church stand against everything that comes against it. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of a righteous person. The power of someone who has Christ's righteousness. That's the gospel. How holy are you? You are just as holy as Christ. That is the essential gospel truth.